Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalio. This is part two of a conversation with Lisa Clifton Bumpus. Lisa and Dominique both attended the recent science camp that I hosted. Our presenters were Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Mary Hunter, Dr. Michaela Hempen, Anita Snay, and myself. Dominique and I both agreed that we so enjoyed science camp that we couldn't resist extending our experience by inviting one of the participants, Lisa Clifton Bumpus, to share an afternoon's conversation with us. Lisa is a dog trainer turned zoo consultant. She's also been a regular attendee at the clinics I give in Half Moon Bay, California. Lisa values the horsework that I do because it gives her insights into balance, which she then takes back to the team she works with in zoos. For me, it's so much fun to think that the work we're doing with horses is helping giraffes and alligators and who knows what other exotic animals to have more comfortable lives, thanks to the work that Lisa has been sharing. Our conversation began last week with a discussion of constructional training. That was last week's episode. This week, we're going to change subjects. I'm going to begin by asking Dominique what stood out for her from science camp. So Dominique, what stood out for you? What what would be a pop out or an aha for you? There were so many things. I just, I, I loved every second of that weekend. Well, one of the big theme, of course, was that uh, reinforcement selects both the behavior and its environment. Yes. That was, you know, throughout the weekend. Um, and we've, we've been more and more, we're concentrating now on the environment and its influence on the behaviors that we're training. Um, so I think to, we, to dive into that, to understand that better and better is really going to make a big difference in my training. I was really interested. There was, um, during one of his talks, he presented, because he, w- he wanted to convince us of this, right? That uh, reinforcement selects both the behavior and its environment. And so he, he presented us with a couple of researches um, on, um, on stimulus control. Uh, there was one research where there were pigeons that pecked illuminated discs and uh, they established, they trained uh, discriminative, discriminative stimuli for one of the discs that would get reinforced if the pigeon pecked that disc and the other disc would not uh, be reinforced. So of course, the, after the training, the pigeon was always accurate, always picking the right disc. And then they, 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 they stopped reinforcing the, the disc that was uh, the discriminative stimuli um, for reinforcement. And so both discs now are extinguished. But one of the things they 
uh, saw during that research is even though because of the extinction, because the, the disc was no longer reinforced, so the behavior dropped in frequency. But even though it dropped in frequency, the pigeon was still almost always accurate in picking the right disc. Yes. And so this was evidence that, well, so extinction, one of the things was that extinction does not abolish the stimuli response relation which I thought was, you know, pretty interesting. You can, and, and there was this distinction too on extinguishing and abolishing. So abolishing the stimuli response would mean that the, there would no longer be, that the, the pigeon would no longer pick the one that uh, was before the discriminative sti stimuli. You can abolish the stimuli response relation, um, but you have to do other manipulations than just extinction. But the idea, I think the reason why uh, I understood correctly, Jesus was presenting this to us was more to uh, give us more evidence that what is learned by our animal is a stimulus response relation, not just a response alone. I think that's that's why he presented us those those um, researches, and and so I thought that was really cool. You know that it it just hit on the nail for me that behavior does not exist in a void. It doesn't exist that's right. in a vacuum without an environment. Yeah, yeah. Lisa, you were yeah. nodding your head vigorously as Dominique was was describing this. So what what it, it, what was that? It was. In the extinction lectures, uh, and I was trying to find the exact quote because I wanted to get it right. And, and it was that behavior is, you cannot destroy behavior or you cannot completely extinguish behavior. You can only change behavior yes. um, by trading either a competing stimulus or training a, a different behavior and reinforcing that. But it was a powerful thing for me because if I may, traditional modern training currently gives us the feeling or the opinion that if I train, if there's a behavior I don't want, I'm going to build it up, put it under cue, and then it's gone. It's like it evaporates. I'm not going to cue it anymore. Well, the cues are in the environment. It still exists. But we can yes. replace that behavior with another behavior. We can change that behavior through reinforcement. And I... I found myself covered with goosebumps because I think that that was the first time someone had said that so directly because, you know, we've been getting the, these little feedings beginning yes, yes. of reinforcement culture was that, you know, we can train a behavior and we can extinguish it and it no longer exists. No, no. And I, no. And I thought Michaela's, um, really beautiful presentation on with Blondie about we don't always always know the cues that are attached or that trigger behavior was so um, amazing because we often think that once we've completely worked on a behavior let's say a problem behavior as an example um, and you can fill in the blank and we think that we have it under control we yes. don't because the controls are in the environment and we don't always mm -hmm. know what all those control factors are. 
mean, you could take a simple example that would be uh, something that people can relate to, that they can experience in their own life. Take, um, oh, something that you feel somewhat addicted to. Maybe it's uh, eating um, a snack or uh, use the example of smoking. But we'll take eating a, a, a snack it's, uh, and you think, you know, I'd like to eliminate that snack. You start looking at, uh, well, in the late afternoon when I come home, you know, as soon as I hang my coat up, I'm just heading for, for the cupboard to reach for that snack. And so you start to say, ah, there's a behavior chain. You know, I hang my coat up and that then cues me to go over to the cupboard and to get the snack. And so that's easy. I, instead of putting my coat on the peg, I'll uh, come in a different door and I'll, and I'll uh, put my coat over, over the chair. And now the beginning of that chain uh, doesn't exist. And oh, look, when I get home, I'm, this is so good. I'm no longer craving the, the snack in the cupboard. And you think, ah, I've taken care of it. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Be yeah. Because there, there are going to be other conditions under which you have headed for that yeah. cupboard to get the snack. Well, it, I, I shared with Jesus when I was a rookie police officer, my five pound bag of peanut M&Ms habit that I developed. And at night when I would leave or in the early afternoon when I would leave to go to work, if I turned right out of the driveway from my parents' home, it took me right by the 7-Eleven at the bottom of the hill. And the 7-Eleven at the bottom of the hill, I always stopped and bought a five pound bag of peanut M&Ms that I ate on the way. Obviously, I started gaining weight. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 my best effort uh, about trying to drive by that was not working. So I'd get to the bottom of the driveway and turn left. And it would take me through a really beautiful um, scenery of green covered hills with mustard flowers on it and old live oak. And it was a winding hill that a road that would take me to the freeway a different direction. The stimulus for my M&Ms was no longer there. And I was able to stop eating M&Ms as long as I turned left. If I turned right, I had that compelling environment cue to go in yes. eat M&Ms. Yes. One of the things he, uh, he's, is he challenged, you know, we always say we strengthen behavior um, with our reinforcers. And he, he was challenging that. He was saying, you know, we, we think we have a very, very strong, fluent behavior and one little change in the environment will disrupt this behavior. And so I thought that was interesting. And when we were talking about the smoking, you know, he was saying, trying to, to remember how he was saying that it's not so much that the smoking or the addiction is really, really strong. It's just that it's cute. It, it's under so many yes. different stimulus control. Yes. It's there are so many situations that I don't know if the word evoke, I'm right. not going the to trigger use the behavior. that word that trigger that behavior. So really 
it's it's not that the behavior is strong, it's that it's under so many different stimulus control that it becomes like omnipresent. I don't know no. if that's a word in English. Yeah. And so because we when we're shaping, we always think we can manipulate the consequence, but really we have another knob there. We can also manipulate um, the the antecedents, the the environment. Um, so there's a lot for us to dive into and to 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 use practically in our shaping once we start to understand better stimulus control. And it is recognizing that when you are shaping, you are shaping the environment response connection. You're not exactly. shaping the behavior. You're That's shaping right. the exactly. environment response pairing. That's exactly right. I think that's really the the leading edge right now. That's creating such a and it, such a wonderful shift in our thinking. But it's really we've known this. We've known this for a very very long time. We're just getting the clarity in the way we mm -hmm. talk about it, mm -hmm. and that's the really powerful part. It was very much like when when uh, Mary was talking about constructional training and the the concept of constructional, just the whole philosophy, by calling it an atom or a group of, of, of particles that become an atom of one kind or another, and how these different things or parts of an atom can be recombined to make something completely different. It's a beautiful yes. analogy in, for me, the awareness of that it was just that we, we often think of behavior as this lump, this thing, this label. Yes. On. And in essence, when we thin slicing it, or when we start pulling it apart, it, there are all these other actions. And I really like the fact that Jesus and Mary are asking us to use the word action as opposed uh, to behavior so that we're thinking about it in a different way it was real profound for me. I am still chewing on that. Yeah. I'd like to head us in a slightly different direction right now because one of the participants is someone you work with, so Kyle, and he showed us in the evening introductions just a gorgeous video working on foot care with an animal from the zoo where he works. And I was just gorgeous. And as he said, it was this behavior was developed. He was at the our first virtual science camp, and it was the concepts and ideas that he had uh, taken from that first uh, science camp that he attended that really helped him with this particular behavior. But what struck me in that and that and where and this is the part that really is your niche is the beautiful teamwork that was yeah. there in that. Uh, so there were three people working with this animal to help him be comfortable with foot care. And, and in the past, the foot care that this animal would have experienced would have been very traditional, rough and ready. Wrestling uh, is what he called it. Wrestling, yes, yes. You know, and, and so the associations, the history that he would have had with having humans handling his feet would not have been the uh, most positive experience in his whole life. So to see this 
beautiful teamwork in the three people who were there was lovely. And, and I was thinking, you know, in terms of working with our horses, that this is something that we definitely need help with. Because for the most part, most of us work, it's just one person. And that's often what, what I hear when I'm at clinics. But, you know, I have nobody in my barn to help. Me. And there's uh, the, the times when I've had a training partner have just been wonderful. Because there are things that are just made a lot easier when there are two of you or three of you. But there are times when all of us, most of us, are working with another person, namely when the farrier is there, when the vet is there, and to have a, a repertoire, a skill set in knowing how to engage that professional in a, a relationship slash training conversation with our animal so that everyone's needs are met. The farrier remains safe, the vet remains safe, they can get the job done, they can get the job done in a timely fashion to the level of, of care that they professionally want to be giving, that our needs are met in that our animal uh, gets the, the husbandry care that it needs and we're not we're not traumatized in the process, watching our animals being rustled, and that our animal has a, a pleasant experience with the humans, and that his medical care, husbandry care, is met. And this really is your area of that you you've been developing. So, talk to us about this. Thank you. All of us in the training world, when we come to a training picture are coming from what we've learned and what we've experienced. And that often has different language and different methods that create conflict when we're trying to do the same thing together. And part of what I've called team training is um, before you start working with the animal, you develop a language that both people or all the people, whether it's the veterinarian or the farrier and the keepers and um, whomever is handling in that picture, they understand each other. And the very first thing we always build is a safety word. So I'll use the alligator at the San Jose Zoo. We have a safety word. It's called clown car. Because in the zoo, you're not gonna see a car of clowns. There are not going to be clowns walking around. There may be someone acting like a clown, but they're not in our training environment anywhere. So that safety word means that something is going wrong and we need to stop. And that's the beginning of the conversation that everybody on the same page. And you've picked a word that doesn't immediately make you go, <gasps> no, panic. no, it's, always, yes. it's a, almost always a silly word. And then yeah. the way I teach training teams is there's usually always a lead trainer, someone who gives the feedback. And in that videotape um, is a woman named Elise who actually had her hand taking the pulse of Slider the steer. And at one point in time, yes. you can hear her saying, his heart rate is really nice and slow. Yes. Which is a good thing. And then there's a person who's operating the tools, whether it is drawing blood, giving an injection, or uh, in Slider's case, using, what are they called? Uh, uh, 
uh, a trimming knife. A Dremel. It was yeah. different than a grinder because it's a much more aggressive type of hoof trimming tool. Anyway, that doesn't matter because it takes these three different people to be able to do the work. And usually we start with one person who uh, learns one aspect of the job and they, and all of us are talking to each other about the language of that job. So Elise talks about what she's seeing that's about calm collected behavior and slider. Um, and it might be something called noodle tail, which means their tail is dangling from their buttocks in a very soft and relaxed way. There's no clenching of the tail against the, the back end. Um, or it might be how vertical they're standing on their feet um, or how soft the muscles feel underhand. And teaching that person how to speak out loud so that all three people understand what's being said and it can build the relationship between the three. Then we have the trainer, who's the person who's marking behavior and delivering reinforcement, except for if it's a giraffe, the person who's marking behaviors on the ground, and you have someone standing 20 feet up on a ladder <laughs> to deliver reinforcers at the head of the giraffe. And then there is the person who's actually, since we're talking about hoof care, the person who's operating the tools. Now, unless it's a tool that can be shared by everybody, um, then each person uh, rotates through the job so they understand each other's job really well. And that's part of the training process. What happens is that the animal or the learner also learns that different people are going to be doing different things. Different things, yes. That people can shift where they're standing, that someone who was kneeling next to them might stand up and go to their head. And it, it becomes something they understand and learn as part of the process or possibly an eventuality. And as we're building the behavior, everybody understands each other's job and respects each other's job. And that's often what doesn't happen with animal trainers is that we, we all believe we have the better idea or the better, yes, or that someone is not doing their job well enough. But if you go through all three of those jobs as outlined, you have a much better understanding of what's required of the other two people in the picture. When we introduce the farrier or the veterinarian, part of the setup, the environmental setup is that you have a conversation about what it's gonna look like, where the animal's gonna stand, where people need to be, and does there need to be a change for the farrier or the veterinarian um, based on the protocol they're doing. And it's a conversation that de-escalates because almost everybody who's entering into hoof trimming or a medical procedure, their arousal level is a little bit higher. And because there are multiple training sessions um, and for the, it's the San Francisco Zoo that Kyle's at. Um, the farrier is not there every time, but every time he's there, he's learning about training through a different animal that he's working on. Is you build all of these behaviors on the people where they respect each other. And again, for like the farrier or the veterinarian who's included in this process, they get to talk about what they need done and how they're going to do it in a way that the other people respect. So it becomes a collegial event and not adversarial event. And there are multiple sessions that happen this way where there's a complete understanding of what training looks like, how the behavior is changing. And for the vets and the vet techs and, and uh, the farrier who I really like, his name is Scott and I wish I knew his last name because I would broadcast it live for everybody to know Scott because he's just, 
he's magical when he's working uh, different kinds of animals' feet, is that being a part of the team reinforces being a member of the team. Seeing the animal relaxed and compliant and or choosing to participate, as in Slider, who had this justifiable label of being dangerous at one point in time in his life, creates a camaraderie that is magical because the reinforcement rate, the rate of reinforcement for each member is really, really high. And for these outsiders, they're now getting access to these animals who are active, relaxed, if you'll allow me the word thoughtful in the process, who are also communicating that they may need to shift their weight or they may need to take a break and it doesn't become a battle. So it's, it's, it's really cool. And, and I've had several teams excel well, and then the team members go on to build teams elsewhere in their zoos, which is my, that's my reinforcer for the work. Cause it, yes. it's really nice. Yeah. Cause that really then ripples through a much larger community. Yeah. Um, it, it's too bad that we can't show the video tape of slider for people to see. Um, but the setup is that he's in a large corral. Uh, he walks up to a slightly elevated platform that he's trained to, it's like mat, the mat training, all of the. And we should, before you describe it. So he is a, he's, he's in the children's. He's in the children's. Zoo. And he, he's a steer. steer. He had a history of being. Dangerous. A, dangerous. Yeah. They used to have to walk him two people at a time on a halter with lines on other side. Um, because he would run people down. He would try to hurt people. I have to ask, how did he ever end up in a children's zoo? I have no, no idea. Um, well, that does not sound like a good starting candidate somehow. Well, um, it's a representative farm life. And Slider, I think, is the uh, cow steer-like. He's the token. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, yeah. so in the videotape, Slider gets up on this, has been trained to get up on this platform and the three people stand and he's a, along a fence line. And the people are standing in the corral with him, with a slider between the fence and them. And he's just standing there. Um, yes. Letting them. And there was a time constraint. They they didn't have that much time. To they had less him, than two they? weeks or they, or Slider was going to experience uh, what's called a knockdown, which is a sedation process that uh, he would go completely down and they could work on all four feet without him. I think it's also a chemical immobilization process so that they could do all of his feet without the risk of Slider being hurt or the people doing the work being hurt. So Slider's learning how to participate completely relaxed by choice, anyhow you would even begin to define it yeah. in this procedure that had always been a fight in the past was a big icebreaker uh, for all of the people, except for Scott. Scott has been around enough good horse trainers that he appreciates an animal um, that's more than a willing participant in farrier work. Yeah. You know, that was another one of the, during science camp, one of the, Mary called it the her big ideas. She had eight big ideas. And one of her big ideas was that good training goes mm. fast. Is efficient. And yeah. I mean, you, you do these little, little things, but you always, always, always see progress. And so to be able to train or prepare this steer in yes. two weeks, yes. that's good training. 
<laughs> good training yeah. going fast. And good training multiplies. Yeah. Good training multiplies, yeah. yeah. Behavior uh, multiplies. Yes, yes. yes behavior mm -hmm. multiplies. One of the yeah, cool yeah. things um, about um, a well-designed, well-structured and practiced team is that they're all informing each other so that you know, it's it's kind of like the story about the three wise men, three blind wise men standing in an elef elephant describing yes, it. Yes, yes. Um, because each one has a different job. Can you can you uh, just ah, summarize that? It's a, I think it's an old <laughs> fable about what uh, how three blind wise men would uh, describe an elephant based on what body part they were talking about. And the the example is mm -hmm. that there's one one wise man standing. Uh, at the tail, feeling the tail and describing an elephant as this long, wrinkly. He feels like a rope. Yeah. Yes. An elephant rope. is like a rope. And that the, 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 another wise man would be feeling the, the flank of the elephant and would say, oh, it's this warm, um, but leathery, very large wall. And, and it's strong because you can push against it, but it doesn't, it doesn't uh, push back. And then you have the third wise man who's feeling the trunk and has a completely different uh, so data. It's like a snake. So an elephant, you know, you're all three, you're, you're both wrong. Uh, an elephant is like a snake. Yeah. Yes. Hmm. And, and with the example of slider, you have Kyle, who's at the head of the animal who can look at eyelids, can see how slider is taking his um, food reinforcer the, he can see the respirations and feel his breath. Elise, who is on her knees uh, at Slider, holding the leg so that uh, Amy, who was using the grinder, Elise was commenting on muscle tone and pulse rate so that everybody knew they were going on the right right direction. And, and Amy was able to tell uh, what she was seeing in looking at the feet that Slider was standing vertically on his feet, that he was really relaxed. She wasn't feeling any tension in the leg when she was um, working the grinder um, and then conveying back to the other people. I need to look at this toe a little bit longer, or I need to take a little more off this edge, or he might get uncomfortable. Slider might get uncomfortable at this point because I really need to you know, dig in here, which she did not say in the video, but there, this communication is very effective. I was thinking this would be, I know, if you had this kind of training, uh, say, in vet schools or in vet practices. So you've got, you have dogs. Yes. Because it's one thing I can see developing these teams at a zoo. They're, uh, you're working with your colleagues. You have, things are set up so that you have the opportunity to work with the team the vets are, uh, you're getting the vets on board with this process that the vets you get to, or the farrier may be turning up over a series of days with the understanding that you're not going to do the procedure on day one. But when you have your, your horse or your dog as the farrier or the vet, that can seem like a luxury. So with your own dogs, how do you develop, do you develop that kind of team cooperation with the veterinary professionals that you use? Yes. And actually, that's the exact birthplace of this whole process was 
when I was working in dog training and working with shelters, quite often I would come home with the unadoptables, yes. which were, um, you know, the worst example would be I had a, a dog with cerebellar hypoplasia, which is that the brain is deformed. Um, and uh, she had, if you will, a very limited uh, capacity to learn things because she was childlike, puppy-like all the time. And she had poor balance and poor motor control and required a lot of medical care. And I was really, really lucky because of my vet. We were able to talk about her name. The dog's name was Cerebella, play on <laughs> words on purpose. Yes. But Cerebella, uh, because of her needs, required the vet and I to be a team working with her because you could not wrestle her without causing her to have a seizure. Mm, um, right. and, and we developed that. And then after Cerebella, after we had developed this, where I had taught vet techs and, and my veterinarian, who I dearly love, about how we could work together as a team, then came along the next you know, shelter reject of a dog that had an autoimmune disease that was really horrible. Um, and just to, to give you an example, uh, the autoimmune disease was that the, the cells of the skin would attack themselves and his skin would liquefy and Ooh. he had these sores all over his body, which required a lot of uncomfortable care. And uh, his name was Gritty and uh, he was a Chinese crested. And in order for the vet techs and my veterinarians and I to be at our most effective with Gritty was this same team that we built, the same level of conversation. Because uh, with a, an immunocompromised animal, if you stress them, that can escalate the disease yes. process. So there was this need by the veterinarians to treat my animals in a way that did not trigger stress, whether it was uh, to have seizures or to have the autoimmune process get really bad. My, de my desire for my animal to have as less stress as possible in a lots of, of vet practices uh, and visits and specialists, both Cerebella and Gritty saw many specialists because back then they were anomalies. Anom anomalies. Um, we developed this process and that is the birth that's the real acorn oh, that okay. process of how do I talk to them in a way that doesn't offend them? How do I listen to what they are saying and understand what they need so that I can then translate that into managing behavior for my animal and then go home and train for it because we're going to have to go back in two weeks or three yes. weeks. Yes. Um, so it's, it's doable. Often we have to, slow down and have that conversation first with our farriers and our veterinarians and our vet techs. And, and very much um, like agency, if they say no, they're going to do it their way. There's been an internet conversation on my Facebook page about farriers and the relationships that people have with farriers. And I understand that. Then that's a decision I have to make for the welfare of my animal. And um, that's another part of the, the training process. And, and very much like a request behavior, there's a cue that I teach my um, people that, that says, you know, usually you have choice, but today you don't. Mm. 
I, I respect your agency, but what needs to happen next, you don't have a say in. And that is, I'm sorry. And I literally, I use this, I'm sorry, because so you're sort of shrugging your shoulders and you're opening your palms to the sky, which is, a, yes. yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very different cue for the animals and that, yeah, aversives are going to happen. It's going to be unpleasant, but then reinforcements and enrichment and all these other things are going to happen on, on the other side of that. And I found that when I give people permission to say, I'm sorry, at least in the American culture, that takes down that anxiety about the fact of having to do something unpleasant to their animal or their learner. So there's, there's a combination of, of behaviors that... Yeah, because there are times when I know you're saying no to me, but I'm sorry this has to be done. It's a medical procedure. It's for your, your welfare. So I'm sorry it has to be done. And there may well be a way to train this so that it is much more pleasant for you. But we haven't done that yet because I didn't know you were going to run through a barbed wire fence and rip your leg open, you silly horse. So we just have to get it done. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it's, it's encouraging to hear that these relationships can be developed. You know, I was thinking as you were saying this that I had a... a I had a wonderful vet who I really, really, really liked very much. And then he had a, a terrible accident, a really terrible accident with the horse and left veterinary medicine and retrained to be a human doctor. Sort of interesting that he started out being a horse, uh, an animal doctor first. And when I switched practices, they would. It seemed as though every time I called the vet out, they had a new resident. So it was a new mm. person every time, and I was having to uh, develop the relationship yet again and explain that my horses were family; they were not livestock, and this is how we needed to go about handling them. And I'd get them sort of all broken in, as it were. And I'd, I'd start to get to know them. They'd start to get to know me. And then they'd be out of the practice and somebody else was in there. And it's sort of like, okay, this is obviously not the practice for me. I want a long-term relationship with a vet. You know, I want uh, somebody who knows me, who knows my horses, who knows the boundaries, really, in which we operate as we're handling the, uh, my horses. Yeah. Yeah. That conversation is setting events that I think are really critical yes. um, for us to, to talk to about both as consumers of yes. a service being provided and as the advocates of welfare for animals, but also our veterinarians and our farriers and others need to be able to say where their limits are and where, where they uh, are negotiable or not. And, and I, I fully understand that there are a lot of places in the United States and in other countries where there's only one for miles and miles and miles and miles. Yes. And economy may preclude someone from being able to, you know, uh, bring a specialist in, uh, uh, fly them in or, you know, wait for them to be right. on rounds like one. Um, but being able to listen to uh, and have that conversation, how as uncomfortable as it is, 
is really important for everybody to be safe. And we know for our animals that we know really well, what could uh, trigger an explosion or what could trigger the building up to a really nasty incident where they're going to fight like hell. Um, and, and, And we can advocate for them ahead of time so that maybe they do need you know, a general sedative, or maybe they do need an immobilizing drug in order to do what needs to be done. Uh, And that's a conversation that I don't think that we are taught, at least in my culture, it's a conversation we're not taught to have well. Yes. Yeah. Because there are always going to be situations that we have where it has to be done has to be done now. I may not like whoever this person is who's providing the service, but that's all I've got. And for welfare, it's got to be done now. Right. And if I can learn better communication skills, I will get closer to what I want than if I go in with an attitude and put that person's back up and just say, another one of those, yeah tree huggy horse people that you know that you know and, and their horse is just going to get me run over and hurt because uh, you know their their horses have have no manners whatever so and deservedly so i mean there's responsibility on both sides of this this equation well on all three sides of the equation we can't ask our animals to be responsible for their behavior unless we spend time teaching that process so they understand what's coming and we need to know their limit lines so that we can communicate that. And, and our farrier or our veterinarian or whomever needs to say, you know, this is how it needs to happen. I'm sorry, Lisa, this yes. is what's going to happen and it needs to happen. Right. And, and then I have to, I have to say, okay, then I'm going to pick up on the other side of whatever this procedure is and, and work on making it better. And those are data points for the future. Mm-hmm. Those are really critical pieces that we need. Yes. And, and I've always said with uh, the vets, you know, because the vets will say, I'm, I'm not here to train your horse. And, and I agree with that. You're not here to train my horse, but nor are you there to untrain my horse. Yeah, agreed. So agreed. Yeah. Uh, I, one of the things, the, one of the conversations, one of the last conversations we had at science camp that has been really profound for me, and that has caused home conversations, because I live with an academic, home conversations about the fact that we don't, we are not taught how to follow instructions. And there are own behaviors reinforced by not following instructions, by taking shortcuts, and how important learning how to give instructions and to to learn how to, uh, let me say this, to learn how to be able to give instructions in a way that's consumable yes, and metabolized and understood. Yes. But also then on the other side of that, teaching how to follow instructions, which is a whole subset of operants that yes. we don't often think about. And then we get mad at our horse or our dog or whatever, when we're instructing them to do something or our, you know, our work partners yes. and, and they don't follow our instructions that may not have even made sense. This opens up a new thread in our conversation, so we're going to stop here. I like the way that Lisa has phrased this, presenting instructions in a way that's consumable. 
you would think we would all be great at following instructions. After all, we've been doing it all our lives. Think about the instructions we had to follow in school. Think about the instructions that you follow to learn how to drive. I mean, everywhere we look, we are following instructions. But Lisa is right. We're often not very good at it. And equally, we're not very good at giving instructions. But as I say, this takes us down a new rabbit hole. So we're going to leave this for next time. And right now, my instructions are to say, think about the opportunities that you have with your animals to build better teams. I suspect that as you develop these skills for developing teams around your animal care, you may find that it ripples over into other parts of your life. Next week, we're going to pick up again with this discussion of giving and following instructions. And right now, I'm getting ready to zoom off to Australia for the start of this year's 2021 virtual clinics. I have to say, it is an amazing world. We are truly living in the age of Star Trek, where we can visit with one another in real time, even when the people that you're talking to are on the other side of the planet. It is astounding. If you want to join me at one of this year's virtual clinics, do visit my website, theclickercenter.com, for more information. And here's one last set of instructions for you. Stay well and have fun with your horses.